Pray with me, please. Lord, we just sang a prayer to you, confessing our need. Lord, we need you every hour, every heartbeat, we need you. Every time we draw in breath into our lungs, we need you. All of it is a gift. We praise you. Lord, today we're going to talk about having a thankful heart. And Lord, it comes from you. We thank you. We praise you. We thank you for the relationship that we can have with you in Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you open up our hearts, open up our minds, quicken our wills, Lord, that we may delightfully live in relationship with you. And we'll give you thanks and praise for what you will do in and through your word and to us and for us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were here last week or you caught the message on Facebook Live, or on our website, or even Getter. Remember last week we wrestled over the horrendous whys and wherefores about God giving a command to have his people commit genocide with seven nations. How in the world can that happen? But this week, we're going to hear a distant reminder of that command, that genocidal command, because Israel has not yet entered into the land. But gloriously, we get to turn the corner and we get to talk about gaining and maintaining a thankful heart. And not only Israel, but also we as followers of Christ as well. The Lord has graciously extended an invitation for every one of his people to have an ongoing experience with a thankful heart. But tragically, not one son of Adam or daughter of Eve as C.S. Lewis has coined uh, descriptions for us all as human beings, naturally possess a thankful heart. Would you agree with that? Apart from the Lord's working in the lives of his people, thanklessness describes who we are. But so far in our travels in the book of Deuteronomy, we see the nation of Israel acting so human. In light of who Yahweh is, and what he has done for his people, and we would think that they would display a little gratitude toward him. You know, a little thanks every now and then. But the moment the Lord delivered his people from Egyptian slavery, Israel expressed everything but a thankful heart. Instead, they expressed a complaining heart, a fearful heart, a thoroughly disobedient heart, an idolatrous but praise be to Yahweh, He is not like His people. Amen? He is the ever-present, patient, kind, good, merciful, righteous, and gracious God. And that makes thanklessness among God's people such a heinous thing. But what does it take to turn thankless sinners into those who gain and maintain thankful hearts? Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 to 20, reveals what I believe to be several keys to make that happen. But not only with Israel, as far as a thankful heart goes, but let's fast forward to the days of Christ's ministry. His desire for his disciples is to display thankful hearts as well. And no less than 64 times in the New Testament does it mention some form of thanksgiving coming from thankful hearts of God's people. 
So we're going to do a little back and forth today. We're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 8, and we're also going to be in John 15, 1 to 11. Let's see how to obtain and maintain a thankful heart. But before we dive into the passages today, I want to remind us of a couple of things first. A thankful heart in God's people, whether Old Testament, New Testament days, or even today, all begin from the same place. Grace. His grace. And this is how it must be. Because as we know, all members of the human race either are or were hopelessly lost in desperate need of salvation. And Yahweh is more than up to the task to save us. True? The Lord makes the first move to reach sinful humans. He makes them His own. We call that salvation. And then tells them how to live. It's always been this way, and it always will be this way. Think the summary statement, for example, of the Torah, which is what we call the Ten Commandments. By way of reminder, what does the Lord say to His people, again, His people, before He informs them of what He expects of them? I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The first thing that Yahweh does is remind them of who He is in relationship to them. I am the Lord, your deliverer, your Savior. And only after that grace-filled introduction does he tell his people how to live. Again, summarized in the ten words, the ten commandments. It's the same way in the New Testament with Jesus and his followers. He is the Savior of the world, but he becomes our Savior, our deliverer, when we repent of our sin, And believe the gospel. And when Christ becomes one's savior, everything changes. They become his disciples. There's no such thing as just being a convert and then maybe a little later on down the line you become his disciple. No, that's not how it happens at all. What is the mission statement of a disciple? It's found in what we call the great commission statement of Jesus in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. And so I want to point out a couple of words here that really kind of reveals the crux of what a disciple is. He says, baptized and observing all that I have commanded you. Simply put, a disciple of Jesus is one who identifies with Christ in baptism and then embarks on a lifelong journey to obediently learn his ways. That's what the Lord Jesus means when he says, observe all that I have commanded you. And so, whether Old Testament or New Testament, how does the Lord deal with fallen, sinful images of God? He saves them by His grace and then teaches them, us, how to live. There is no difference in methodology in the way the Lord does things, whether Old or New Testament. And aren't you glad for the grace and mercy of God in your life this morning if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior? Now, in Deuteronomy, Moses tells his people, his saved people involves learning and obeying the Torah, the teaching of God's ways. And in large measure, what does the Torah consist of? His commands, his statutes, and his rules. And Yahweh's people learning his ways 
is square one of gaining and maintaining a thankful heart. In our passage for today, we will see the Lord giving his people several keys that they may gain a thankful heart in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 to 9. In verse 10, we will see what a thankful heart looks like. And in verses 11 and 20, we will see Moses telling Israel how to maintain a thankful heart. So let's walk through Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 to 9, and let's read verse 1 together. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. Now Moses begins here by reminding Israel to obey the command of the Lord. Now straightforward here. Anybody can understand what he said. But notice how Moses builds anticipation among the people. He says, obey the command that you may live, multiply, go in, and possess the land that Yahweh had promised to give to Abraham and his family. And this command also includes obeying his command that his people commit genocide of the seven nations. But now, lest we think that the Lord is simply forcing his unwilling subjects into abject servitude, let's look at verses 2 to 6. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And by the way, have you heard this statement before? (laughs) The Lord Jesus said this when he was hungry. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. In these fascinating statements, what's going on? In short, the Lord through Moses tells his people why he treated them the way he did For the 40 years, they were wandering around in the wilderness. Let's back up a bit. Ask the question, why were they wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years? They didn't have to be. But it was because of their fear-based disobedience. Israel should have taken the land of promise right away, as soon as God told them to do that. But they chose not to. They wanted to check things out first. And then they got scared of what they saw. They falsely accused the Lord, and then they refused to obey him. So the Lord, as it were, put them in a major timeout. Parents, we know what timeout is, don't we? Kids as well. He pressed pause on their going into the land. He prevented them from doing so. But throughout this time of the Lord's discipline, he had a goal in mind. And that goal was to humble his people who had proud hearts. And as a master gardener, the Lord was busy pruning his people, causing them to be fully dependent on him. And Moses said 
that the Lord was testing them, in essence, to reveal to them what was in their heart. Because the Lord already knew what was in their heart. They had to find that out. And so what was the goal of his test? Whether you would keep his commandments or not. And throughout the 40 years of the testing, the Lord brought them to the place of absolute dependence on him time and time again. In verse 3, Moses told Israel that the Lord let them hunger. Literally, he was the cause of their hunger so that they would learn it was the Lord and the Lord alone that they needed to depend upon. Notice how Moses describes things in this verse. He fed them with manna, which neither you nor your fathers knew. Now, why did Moses say that? Why do you talk about manna here? Well, it's all in the name. The single word translated as manna in the English is actually a question in the Hebrew language. It literally is, what is it? That's manna. What is it? And so when people saw the manna, they asked, what is it? Described elsewhere in the scriptures as something like it's akin to graham crackers, something along those lines. And so the answer came back, exactly. What is it? Yes, that's what it is. Manna, what is it? But notice as well how the Lord makes a distinction between bread and manna. Man does not live by bread alone, as in growing the wheat from the ground, making the bread, eating it naturally. But man lives by the things that come out of God's mouth. In other words, the Lord spoke the manna into existence, and then he dropped it down on them every day. Twice on Fridays, because on Saturday, they weren't able to collect it. They were not allowed to. And what a contrast that is to the way things are normally done. See, God was powerfully teaching his people that it was him they had to depend upon, not the way everybody else was doing things, the natural way, you know, planting the wheat into the ground and waiting until it grows, harvesting it, and then making bread out of it. Moses also reminded them of another supernatural act. It was their clothing. To include their footwear did not wear out for 40 years, four decades. Now question, how many of you have clothes in your closet that you are still wearing after 40 years? <laughs> Mark that. Or how about shoes? You might have a few. <laughs> but do you wear them every day? No, they did. 40 years, can you imagine that? And so the first key to gaining a thankful heart is relying upon God alone. For every need. Now we understand that the Lord often uses people and other things to meet our needs. But it is ultimately Him that we must rely upon. Period. And to the degree that we rely upon Him, period, to meet our need is the degree that we will have the first key in having a thankful heart. The bottom line for the backstory of God's dealing with His people in the wilderness was he brought them under his fatherly hand of discipline. Fatherly hand. And what does that imply? That Israel was Yahweh's son. Again, first saved by his grace, and then as a son, the Lord teaches Israel how to live. 
And so key number two in gaining a thankful heart is to embrace the Lord's discipline. How many times we go through things in our lives that are difficult and we either say, well, that's Satan, you know, getting all over me, or for whatever reason, but we don't recognize it as God's discipline. Now, I mentioned earlier that we're going to go back and forth between the Old Testament and New Testament, specifically John chapter 15, to see how the Lord's methods do not change between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so if, if you will, turn with me to John chapter 15, 1 to 2. And here we're going to see Jesus painting a picture of the Lord's discipline process. Jesus says, I am the true vine. My father is a vine dresser. And every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it might bear more fruit. He said that the Father is the vine dresser. Jesus is the vine, and individual disciples are the branches. And all who are truly, actually connected to him, to the vine, undergo the Father's pruning. It's another word for discipline. And so that the branches, disciples of Jesus, might bear much fruit. Just as Israel experienced the uncomfortable, painful process of his discipline, so the Lord Jesus tells us that every true disciple will undergo painful pruning. And we know what that means, don't we? If we've been out there in the garden or whatever, we know what pruning is. It begins with a knife or begins with scissors, doesn't it? What God does with us as his disciples, he deals with us in cutting out the unproductive, ungodly stuff, so that we, as his branches, might bear much fruit. And what's the result of the Lord's pruning in our lives? Let's look at verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. It's not enough to just say, I'm a Christian, I'm a disciple of Jesus. Jesus says this. You got to prove your disciple. And how do you prove the disciple? We're bearing much fruit. The proof that we are his disciples is that we bear spiritual fruit. It's the life of God evident in our lives. And again, what's the Lord's description of his disciples? Openly identifying with him and learning to faithfully obey everything he commanded us. That's what a disciple is. But back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. What was Yahweh's goal for the disciplining, the pruning of his people? Well, he says it three times in six verses. Kind of repeated. I think he wants us to get the point here. Keep the commands of Yahweh. And we just saw this a few minutes ago as we actually read in verse 1. In verse 2, the Lord tested them to show Israel what was in their hearts as to whether they would keep his commandments. In verse 6, Moses summarizes why Yahweh disciplined his people. Wait for it, so that you may keep the commandments of the Lord by walking in his ways and by fearing him. Do you see a pattern here? Yahweh's goal for his people in the Old Testament and Jesus' goal for his disciples in the New Testament is the same. They and we are to keep his commands. And this is the third key to gaining a thankful heart, keeping his ways. Now in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 7 to 9, Moses fills in with hope 
The land that they will enter is a magnificent land, not like the land that they were living in. You see a couple pictures up here. For the first time in centuries, God's people were going to experience lavish abundance. Large amount of beautiful property that they could call their own. And so by way of review, here are three keys to gaining a thankful heart as God's people. Number one, rely on the Lord alone to meet your need. Number two, embrace the discipline, the pruning of the Lord in your life. And number three, keep the commands of God to show our loyalty to him. Let's now take a look at the heart of a thankful heart. Applying the three keys will open the door to gaining that kind of a heart in verse 10. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land that he's given you. And what an amazing thing this is. The Lord gives his people great abundance. They enjoy his good gifts, and the people bless the Lord for what he has given. And that is what a thankful heart is. And that is as liberating, as simple, and as profound as that. Enjoy the Lord. Rest contented in his provision. Express heartfelt thanks to the one who saved and provides for his people, corporately and individually. And that's what it means to have a thankful heart. You know, it's amazing to me when you think about it. The Lord does not ask his people. He never asks his people, by definition, to go and do mighty exploits for him. Now, some people he calls to mighty things like Moses and, and Jeremiah and those in the Old Testament. And even today, I think he calls some. But the vast majority of us, what do we do? We live from day to day with a thankful heart. We enjoy the Lord's blessings. We rest contented in His provision. And we conspicuously, that means we let everybody know that we bless the Lord for His goodness to us. Regardless of our line of work, regardless of what we do. But remember though, how it begins. Salvation first. We come to Christ, repent of our sins, and we receive eternal life. And then we learn how to be obedient to his ways by keeping his commandments, realizing that his ways are the very best way to live. Let me ask a question sincerely. Do you really believe that God's ways are the best way to live? Do you really believe that? Receiving and sometimes enduring his discipline and pruning to the extent that all we want is only what he gives. That's part of having a thankful heart. And those of us who know the group Building 429, this song is familiar to us, Where I Belong. Part of the lyrics go like this, Take this world, but give me Jesus. This, as in picking through shiny substitutes for real life, is not where I belong. What does the world try to do? This shiny object over here, that shiny object over there, and they try to make us go after these things. It's not where we belong. We belong in the Lord's presence. We belong having a thankful heart because of what He has done. He is our Savior, not the world. He is our Lord. He is our Deliverer. He is our Provider. 
He is the one in whom we place our hope. And when we come to the place where we have an ongoing, heartfelt attitude of gratitude for the Lord of how he treats his people, both individually and corporately, that's how we know that we've gained a thankful heart. And I want you to say that many, if not most of us who know the Lord, have been here at one time or another. Remember the freshness of your salvation. When the Lord lifted the burden of your sin, and for the first time you experienced the assurance of His forgiveness in your life. When you prayed long and hard because you had a dire need, and as you prayed, the Lord came through in only the way that He can. When you came to a heartfelt realization of His grace and mercy, and just knew that in the company of God's people is where you belong. It's these times, and so many more, that the only response that we can offer the Lord is profound, heartfelt thanksgiving. Sometimes the words don't come. But you, and more importantly, the Lord knows the depth of your gratitude and how you gain the thankful heart. But once we gain a thankful heart, wouldn't it make sense for us to keep that heart? Wouldn't it make sense for us to maintain the thankful heart? Well, this is the subject of verse 11, 20. But in order to maintain a thankful heart, Moses gives three vital warnings. If we don't heed these warnings, a thankful heart's going to be stolen from us or we'll give it away, one or the other. Three times Moses says to Israel, don't forget the Lord. How in the world? Once we have a thankful heart, how can we forget Yahweh? Or how can we forget Jesus? Well, it happens. And that's why Moses warned many times, don't forget the Lord. In verse 11, Moses said that the first way to forget the Lord is to refuse to keep his commandments. Now, if we knew Hebrew and we were living back in the day when we were actually hearing Moses speak, we would hear Moses warning sort of like this. People. Don't forget the Lord in a slow fade. Now, they probably didn't use those words, but you know what I'm talking about. Slow fade. Just going, living your life and kind of letting the Lord fade away. In other words, it's not about temporary lapses of disobedience where we quickly get back on track as we repent. No, what we're talking about here is the trajectory. It's the direction of our lives. Now, we know the Lord knows the human condition. Would you agree with that? He knows us better than we know ourselves. We begin something fresh and new with great enthusiasm. And after a time, things begin to wane, don't they? The newness wears off, and we're not as excited about this as we once were. And in this case, we become less eager to keep his commandments and enter into the process of forgetting the Lord. And here's where we all need encouragement for all of us. We need to keep going. Just keep going. Keeping the commands of the Lord with a thankful heart is not mere religious activity. It is a profound privilege for us to do these things. But the slow fade begins to take hold as God's people neglect the very first couple of words in verse 11. And Moses said simply, take care. 
monitor your heart. Monitor what's going on in your life and your relationship to him. Constant monitoring of our soul is the all-important key to maintaining a thankful heart. Have you ever been sluggish in your relationship with the Lord? I think all of us can say, yes, if we were really honest. But when we discover our sluggishness in our obedience to his ways, let's not just chalk it up to, well, that's just the way it is in my season of life right now. No, be curious enough to find out why you are sluggish and then return to the keys by which you gained a thankful heart in the first place. Be curious. Say, there's something wrong here. Why am I kind of slow to obey the Lord? The second way God's people forget the Lord is yielding to the wiles of prosperity. Notice I didn't say yielding to prosperity but the wiles of prosperity. See, having things and being prosperous is not evil. You know, we can have things. And remember Abraham, for example, he's one of the richest guys around. Job was the richest guy around. And what happened to him? So just having things is not evil. But it's the wiles. It's the deception that can come along with prosperity. Because prosperity can so easily deceive the one living in it. It's been said that it's much more difficult to serve the Lord in times of prosperity than it is during times of hardship. Maybe that's perhaps why our brothers and sisters in Yemen, for example, they don't ask us in the West to pray that God lessens their persecutions. But they do ask us that that we would pray for them and say, Lord, give them strong backs. They may be able to endure it. And so allow me... Summarize for us what Moses is saying to Israel regarding prosperity in verses 12 to 18. I can kind of hear him saying something like this. When everything that you have and everything that you need is so abundant that it's coming out of your ears, make sure you monitor yourself. There's danger in prosperity. You'll be tempted to forget the Lord. And you'll look around and you may begin to even say, look at all these things I've done for myself. Forgetting the Lord is your ultimate provider. Just like Moses' first warning to not forget the Lord in a slow fade, so here as well. Because simply put, it takes time to build houses, doesn't it? It takes time for animals to multiply. It takes time to dig out precious metals and fashion them into valuable things. It takes time and human effort for all of this. And Moses' second warning is basically, over the long haul, don't take the credit. You did the work, but you wouldn't be able to accomplish the things that you had done if the Lord had not given you the ability and the resources to do so. Now, Speaking of the Lord, notice how Moses brings to Israel's remembrance Yahweh's marvelous deeds he did on behalf of his people. In verses 14 to 16, Yahweh is described as their deliverer, as their protector and their provider, meeting all of their needs. Beware, Moses said, lest when the Lord has abundantly prospered you, that you forget him. Again, he's not saying forget all those things that are around you. It's obvious what God has done in your life, Moses says. But the warning is about Forgetting the person of God, 
about the relationship that God has with His people. And when people forget the Lord in the midst of their prosperity, God's people will fail to maintain a thankful heart. The third warning Moses gives sort of goes hand in hand with the second one. Basically, don't forget the Lord by going after other gods in order to worship them. Now, there are two reasons for this. First is found in verse 14. Moses said to monitor themselves, lest their hearts be lifted up in pride. In other words, the danger is forgetting all the pruning, all the disciplining that the Lord has done in their lives. There's another way scripture describes forgetting all the pruning and, and all those things and having a rebellion. The danger that their necks would be stiffened. In other words, they would not bow to the Lord, refusing to submit to his ways. Now, this is a deadly combination. When a person refuses to bow to the Lord with a thankful heart for his provision on one hand, and then on the other hand, having all of these things that he has given them amassed together, then what happens? People get proud, and then they get tempted. Let's see what else is out there in the world. Let's see what other gods can help me. See, I can hear the stiff-necked members of, of Israel who live in the lap of abundance sharing these kinds of words with one another. You know, perhaps the gods of the, of the Amorites could give us an even better life than what we have. You know, Yahweh keeps giving us these restrictive commands. He blesses them. What if the Amorite gods don't care whether we obey them or not? What if they give us stuff and we don't have to obey? Let's go check it out. Well, Yahweh has something to say about this. As we said last week, even though he pledged to give his real estate to Abraham and his descendants, this is still Yahweh's sacred space. Yahweh still demands his people to kick sin out of his space. No rival gods, small g, are allowed to compete with Yahweh for the affection of his people in his sacred space. Spiritual adultery is abhorrent to Yahweh, for he is the perfect husband to his people. So if the Lord's people persist in cheating on their spiritual husband, they will have to suffer the consequences. We find Moses' final warning in verse 20 here. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord. Moses tells Israel in essence, Hey Israel, Yahweh commands that you commit genocide on seven nations, but his land remains sacred space still. But now listen up. After you annihilate seven nations, it's not do as you please. If you insist on living the way these seven nations were living after you dispatched them, then I will dispatch you too. As we get more into Deuteronomy, we're going to see this kind of a, of a warning time and time again. So how to maintain a thankful heart? In a word, don't forget the Lord. Continually check yourself to see where you are in relation to Him. Not the things He's given you, but to Him. Continue to obey his commands with all your heart. Cautiously proceed as the Lord abundantly blesses you. And by all means, 
Don't go after the gods to see if you can get a better deal. Now we think about Deuteronomy. We think about all these, if you do, then I will do kind of thing. Kind of conditional promises here. If you obey the Lord, He will abundantly bless you. Now of course, God's people, if they're truly God's people, they do this because they love the Lord. But there are many believers who actually hold to the idea that God's people have no responsibility in their relationship with the Lord. After all, it's by grace, through faith, plus nothing, minus nothing. I've got no responsibilities in my sanctification with the Lord and walking with Him. God saved me and I'm good to go. And we can rightly thank God for the new covenant that the Lord has written by His Spirit, His law upon our hearts. That we are saved for eternity. Wonderful thing. But yet again, the idea that so many people have, since Christ has already paid the eternal price for my sin, all is well. Well, is it? Let's find out. As I alluded to at the beginning of the message, John 15, I think, in my opinion, is a New Testament parallel to Deuteronomy chapter 8. So let's turn there. Though the Lord gives a tender, beautiful analogy of the relationship, the Father as in Yahweh, Jesus himself as the Son of God, and his disciples, there are some extremely difficult things that the Lord talks about here. Let's not soft sell what he's about to say. In John 15, 1-2, as we mentioned before, Jesus tells his disciples things that are extremely close to his heart. As we remember, if we remember the chronology, he's only hours away from the cross. He's telling his men things that are extremely important to him. In verse 2, Jesus continues with this metaphor of vine and branches this way. He said, every branch, get this, in me that does not bear fruit. The Father, as in Yahweh, takes away. It is as it sounds. The picture Jesus paints is simply this. It may look like the branch is connected to the vine, but if there is no fruit on the branch, there is no life there. And the Father, He's the vine dresser, takes it away. Now, if God takes a branch away from the vine that doesn't bear fruit, it's important that we understand what it takes to bear fruit. Would you agree? So what is the key to fruit bearing? What does it mean to bear fruit? The short answer to fruit bearing is that the branch must abide in the vine. Let's look at verse 4. Abide in me, Jesus says, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. By the way, this word abide is a command. In other words, we as his disciples are to exercise our will to make it happen. That's what an imperative is. But don't mishear me though. I'm not talking about that we have to hang on for, for dear life to make eternal salvation happen. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what I am passing on is what Jesus considered our responsibility to abide in Him. So now let's move on to a dire warning. 
in verse 6. Again, he spoke these words to his closest men, his 11 disciples. He was practically living with for about three years. And his disciples saw all kinds of things, heard all kinds of things from the Lord Jesus. And here's what he's telling these men. Right before he died, he said this, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and are burned. My brothers and sisters, this has got to be one of the most sobering statements the Lord Jesus has ever made to his people. He tells us straight up that those who do not abide in him will be thrown away like a branch. And the now withered, lifeless branch will be gathered with the other branches and they'll be thrown into the fire and they will be burned. What does that sound like to you? And so if the key to fruit bearing is abiding, and if it seems here that our eternal destiny is hinging upon whether we abide in Christ, then it would be of utmost importance that we find out what it means to abide. So what does it mean to abide? We don't have to figure it out because our Lord tells us. Let's look at verses 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. It's an amazing statement, isn't it? Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Well, there it is. We abide in Christ by keeping His commandments. So what is the key to fruit bearing? Abiding. What is the key to abiding? Keeping His commands. It all comes down to that, doesn't it? There is a profound warning here. Let's not water it down. Let's not soft sell it. Because Jesus is the truth. He says what He means, and He means what He says. But now, let's not leave things here. Let's go on to some amazing things that Jesus is now saying. Let's look at the next verse, John fifteen eleven. This is incredible. Jesus says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus told his men that the source of his joy was found in what he just said, keeping his father's commandments. And who's his father? Yahweh, the very one that was speaking to his people, Israel, back in the Old Testament. And the commandment included going to the cross. In John 14, 30, just a chapter back, Jesus tells his disciples, I do as my Father commanded so that the world may know something. That I love, how we finish it, that I love us. That's not what Jesus says. So that the world may know that I love the Father. My dear friends, do you see the chasm that exists between our Lord Jesus and us? The Lord Jesus, the eternal Son of the Father of Yahweh, had a joy-filled relationship to His Father. It was so joyful that Jesus wanted the world to know how much He loved His Father. And as He hung on the cross, taking our sin upon Himself, He was declaring to the world, I love my father. 
the writer to the Hebrews said that for the joy that was set before the Lord Jesus, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. There are no words, are there, for this unspeakable act of obedience that the Lord Jesus rendered to his Father. And he obeyed his Father to this degree. Why? Because his heart was filled with unspeakable joy for his Father. And now in John 15, 11, notice this. Jesus gave his disciples an invitation. And what is that invitation? To have the same level of joy in obeying him as he has in obeying the Father. Do you have joy in obeying the commandments of the Lord? Is this not akin to what Yahweh wants of his people in Deuteronomy 8? It gives the Lord great delight when we gain and maintain a thankful heart. So what does this mean? In short, keeping the commands of the Lord is not a hard, cold, legalistic thing. Remember who Israel was and who we are dealing with as well. It's the greatest, most significant being in the universe who wants to have the most significant relationship with you and me. And the Lord holds the keys. Now, speaking of living a best life, not to be confused with others who say that, when we have a thankful heart, we are just in the right place to serve others. And we might want to call this thankful heart God's key that we might have an effective ministry in the lives of others. Now, whether they be our spiritual siblings or whether they be people who are yet to come into the kingdom of God. Maybe some people never will come into the kingdom of God, but we can still, with a thankful heart, minister to them as well. The Lord Jesus spoke of the world as a field, a field of souls. If you remember a guy named Wayne Watson, he wrote a song that talks about this very thing. When God's people around the world serve others because they have gained and they maintain a thankful heart, can you imagine the significant impact that God's people can have on them? By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus said, I do as my Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. The key to effective ministry in the lives of others is gaining and maintaining a thankful heart. Help me to be a mature child of God. One who's after your own heart. Help me show my gratitude in keeping me a thankful heart. Let's pray. For we can never Repay you. Impossible. Just absolutely impossible. Lord, you know what we need. And your heart of compassion meets our needs. We thank you, first of all, for salvation, Lord Jesus. And in doing so, in, in purchasing salvation for us, you showed the world that you love the Father. And then, Lord, you're inviting us to have a, a joy, unspeakable, full of glory as we simply obey you.
we thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to truly obtain and maintain a thankful heart that you could use us in dramatic, just powerful ways in the lives of others who so desperately need our ministry. And so now, Lord, I thank you for this time that uh, we got a couple more things that we can give as far as worship to you. Lord, that we can give of our of our resources. We ask, God, that you help us to give from a heart that's overflowing and full of thanksgiving. And then, Lord, as we sing our last song, Lord, I pray that you help us to sing with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength as an act of worship to you because you alone deserve it. In Jesus' name.